just bring you greetings. We want to just say, again, welcome to those uh, visiting as well as those that are visiting online. Um, on behalf of Pastor Chris Sally, we just say thank you for attending, whether it be digitally or in person. I um, also want to say thank you to Pastor Sally for uh, just the opportunity to exercise uh, the gift that God has given me as well. Um, also want to extend a special thanks to one of my best friends who continues uh, to be a proverbial thorn in my side, but I love him because I, I like to bother him just as much. Um, want to extend um, a, a thank you to uh, my in-loves as well. Both my mother and father in love have come to support. Um, I also want to say thank you to my godmother and my, my aunt as well, who is uh, here supporting as well. Um, and of course, I want to say thank you to my mother who continues to support me yet again. We was cutting it close today, but you know, that's, that's how we do sometimes. <laughs> but I uh, just want to also lastly, but of course not least, just say uh, thank you to my wife who has been Holding it down this week. Been, been nursing me back to health. So just grateful for her love, for, grateful for her service uh, as well. Um, I don't know if y'all can tell, I'm excited this morning. Just being able to preach God's word. But I'm also, if I'm honest, I'm a little nervous. Because we're going to touch on uh, a couple ideas that may not uh, resonate well with, with what we have assumed to believe about the nature of God. Amen. If you have your copies of the word, uh, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And when you have it, please stand for the reading of God's word. chapter 8, we will be reading verses 2 through 5. When you have it, say amen. I think we got everybody. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, starting at verse 2, I'll be reading out of the New American Standard uh, Version, and it reads as follows. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, and he let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear you out, wear out on you, excuse me, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. With the time we have remaining, turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, go on and get the belt. No, I need you to say it the right way. Turn to your other neighbor, say, neighbor, go on and get the belt. 
That gone and get is one word. Gone and get, you may have your seats. Gone and get. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this time again uh, to be able to open up your word, Father, and to learn about you. Father, I just pray that you would remove all of myself, Father God, and that you would fill me with your precious Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that the words that are shared and communicated um, are filled with the conviction of your love as well as your justice, Father God. I just pray that the hearts and the minds of those today may be challenged, that they may be encouraged, um, that they may be stretched as well, Father God. Lord, I pray that with this with this rendering of your of your word, Father God, I pray that it would serve as an encouragement to those that you still use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So growing up, um, arguably, I would make the case that I had one of the best childhoods ever. Um, there was so much freedom to do a myriad of things that I learned much later on in life probably weren't the safest things to do. And it didn't help that one of the referees in these games and these antics was my mother. But one of the hallmarks of my childhood in particular was, uh, how do I put this, was whooping time with my father. You see, one of the things that went on in our house is when we got into too much trouble, it wasn't, I'm going to tell your father, I want you to call your father. And to make matters worse, we didn't call our dads directly. We had to use his pager number. So we would have to call our dad, wait for him to call back, and then tell on ourselves. <laughs> if that wasn't bad enough, we would have to sit on the couch or I would have to go sit in my room and I have to wait for my dad to come home. Amen. He would send me up to his office and while he would get the full story from my mother, I would wait patiently, daring not to fall asleep. And sure enough, I'd hear those feet hit the staircase. And before I knew it, I was staring face to face with the judge, the jury, and most horribly, the executioner. No matter what was discussed, though, he always concluded with one of the two famous lines that I'm sure we have all heard before. You, you, you know, I know you know at least one of them. This is going to hurt me. Okay, so maybe, okay, okay, maybe we grew up similar. Or what about, I'm only doing this because I love you. Now, if y'all are anything like me as a child, you know both of those statements are false. Okay, maybe it's just, I, I, I struggled with the, okay, okay, so I'm, I'm in good company. I, there was something about this idea of the person who claimed to love me 
causing me pain and calling it love. I really struggled with this idea. But my only thought in the moment was, how is this actually possible? And while I can only speak for myself with certainty, I believe we all, at times, struggle with the same idea with God punishing us and loving us. The evidence of this is very clear in our culture, as well as we see in our churches. It's, it's that feel-good theology. You know that God is love. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you did. You can go ahead and you can have all the things, but don't worry. God is love. You know, and then we, we have the more popular in our culture. You know, God gives his strongest battles to who? His strongest soldiers. And then whenever things get really hard, is God will never put more on me than I can bear. And as a result, we've created a lowercase g God in our image that blesses and never curses, that praises and never punishes, that always gives life and never presents death and causes prosperity and avoids poverty. Because the truth of the matter is we want a God that serves us rather than serving the true and living God. And as much as we long for and desire God's favor and his blessings, we fail to see the value in his discipline. But in order to truly appreciate the blessings that God gives us, in spite of what we've done, we have to learn how to appreciate the discipline he gives us because of what we've done. So as we break into Deuteronomy 8, uh, Israel is preparing to go into the promised land now that the previous generation has passed. Moses is nearing the end of his life, and he offers his parting wisdom by revisiting all that's transpired over the last 40 years. In Deuteronomy 2, we see that the Israelites have been traveling through the wilderness as a result to the older generation's disobedience for 38 years. Deuteronomy 3, we see that Moses even shares that not even he is going into the promised land because of his disobedience. Chapters four and five, Moses then begins to reiterate the law that was transcribed in, in uh, Exodus and Leviticus. Chapter six is a reminder of how God will respond to our obedience in the land. Chapter seven is a reminder of how God will respond to disobedience in the land. So chapter eight, Moses circles back to God's punishing Israel for not going into the promised land to this new generation. Now, it's important to, to visualize the scene that's transpiring here on the banks of Jordan. The oldest people now at the banks of Jordan to enter the promised land, when they started their journey, they were only 19 years old. And now they're about 57, 58. You also have a group of Israelites that were probably too young to remember what actually transpired. And given that they were in the desert for almost, well, a total of 40 years, it's reasonable to assume that they were babies that were born in the wilderness and all they know is wilderness life. 
They have no concept of God moving mountains. They have no concept of God parting Red Seas. All they know is this wasteland that they've been traversing their entire lives. So Moses is doing this to remind some and to encourage others that God is willing to do whatever it takes to bring us back to him. Now, I know some of that may rub you the wrong way because we know that God is, God is, God is one of those guys that, you know, we get that picture of that sheep that he carries on the back, on his back the whole time, not knowing that the sheep is on his back because he broke his legs. But the picture looks good, right? Like we, we always want to be that sheep because God, because God just loves us. But I think we often struggle in life because we can't get around the fact that God not only loves us, but he disciplines us. I would even argue that his discipline is evidence of his love. So notice, notice with me, three things about God's discipline that I want to talk about for the time that we have uh, remaining. Notice with me the personalization of God's discipline. Starting in verse 2 to verse 5, we have what I like to call first-person action verbs. This says that God led you, God humbled you, God tested you, God let you be hungry, God fed you with manna, and God discipled you. God leading you in the wilderness, with that being a first-person action verb, it was God himself who walked the Israelites through the desert. With being humbled, that word humbled translates to actually inflicting pain. Now, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that God is going to cause me pain? Yes. As, as they say, show you right. So not only does he lead us, not does he walk with us, not only does he cause us pain, God also tests us. Now, mind you, we all know or we should know that the word for testing and the word for temptation is the same word that is dictated by the noun that precedes it, but there's also two different types of testing. The first type of testing is when God uses man to prove God true. But the second one is when God himself proves himself to be true. Here in Deuteronomy 8, we see that God is proving himself to be the one true God to the Israelites. So not only has he proved himself, God was the one who fed the Israelites himself. Notice there was no food in the wilderness, and he made sure that there was no food in the wilderness, and he provided exactly what the Israelites were to have day by day as a part of their punishment. But not only did he feed us, he disciplined us as well. And that discipline speaks to a level of care and judgment based on the sensitivity of the crime. So at this particular point, God or Moses is reminding them that God didn't use the weather. God didn't use other people yet. And he wasn't willing to call plays from the sidelines. God stepped in in real time and dealt with his people firsthand on a first name basis. Secondly, we see that, excuse me. 
not only do we see the personalization of God, secondly, we see the inspiration of God's discipline. There's three things that God exposes in, our, in, in disciplining us. Number one, in verse two, we see that God exposes our rebellious nature. Now, if you have your copies of the word, turn to Numbers 14. Because to understand what's going on here in Deuteronomy 8, you got to get a real-time feel of what actually created this whole debacle. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and all the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, What? What would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. And would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint another leader and go back to Egypt. Now, if that isn't crazy enough, same chapter. Flip over to verse 40. Because for some odd reason, I don't know why this didn't stand out to me before, but the Israelites were disobedient twice. So they chose not to go, so they chose not to go into the promised land. Then God said, okay, fine, go back into the wilderness. And they said, you know what? Self, their self said, hmm. Maybe we should actually try and go into the promised land. Verse 40, excuse me, verse 40, it says, In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you will be struck down before the enemies of the Lord. How many times have we had to get banged because we didn't want to be obedient? Just, just simply because you chose not to do what you were supposed to do. Interestingly enough, while preparing this message, I found myself teaching what I was preaching in my household. Because, of course, when it's time to do homework, all of a sudden we lose the desire to exercise our, our fingers and our arms and to sit still. And all of a sudden math is not math anymore and it's just overwhelming and it's consuming and we got to do all this spelling. And how come I got to write my words five times when, when the girls write their, name, their words three times? Why do I have to start over and use commas when only they use periods? Hey, hey, listen. The homework's got to get done. And when they struggle to get their homework done, come tomorrow when it's time to play, we got to go inside. <laughs> so not only, so what was interesting is that since the Israelites didn't want to go where God sent them back in Numbers 14, God took it upon himself to create a willingness in the Israelites to obey God's commandments. So not only does he expose our sinful nature, number two, he also exacerbates our idols. Verse three 
I'm sorry, verse 3 in Deuteronomy 8, it says that he humbled you and he let you go hungry and fed you with manna. If I can be honest, this bothered me. Just sitting there thinking like, okay, it's the desert. There's, There's not supposed to be food. But that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture says that God let them go hungry, which means there could have been food there, but God said no. There could have been food there for the Israelites to find on their own, but because God was in the business of teaching them a lesson of dependence, he said, no food, no water until I say so. And if I'm honest even more, I had a hard time getting around that. It's just like, you know, it's like, dang, you mean I can't eat? Like what, what, what I need? But, but this is where the idols come from. I challenge you to reread the, the Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The amount of times the Israelites complained about not having water and not having food, that they were willing to go back under the penalty of slavery just to have a full stomach. If that's not an idol, I don't know what else is. So the question is, what's your idol that you're willing to go back to? There's a whole bunch of us that like that computer screen way too much. Sometimes that we struggle to do what God has told us to do. And if, if we're being honest, sometimes God is going to wear us out because of the idols that we have. And God is willing to allow you to, to enjoy those idols to prove to you that those idols can't sustain you. The crazy thing is that Israel had so much Egypt in them that the slavery chains had become designer jewelry to them. Imagine witnessing 10 plagues to get you out of slavery, walking between two walls of water on dry land, seeing God's physical presence rest on a mountain, seeing a man return from that mountain with a face so bright that they had to put a veil on him Just for you to say Egypt sounds like a better option. Can we say idle much? Thirdly, not only do we see that he exacerbates our idols, he also expresses his grace and his mercy for his people. Verses four and five, it says that Your clothes did not wear you out, nor did your feet swell in those 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord God was disciplining you. I want to say discipling so bad. And that changes the context of everything. Uh, that, That God is disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Turn back over to Numbers 14. I want you to look at verse 12. Now, just a transparency moment while preparing for this sermon, I had an amazing time piecing this whole story together in my mind. Uh, Actually, back up to uh, verse 10 in chapter 14, and it says, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? 
I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And in other translations, it says, I will destroy them and disown them. And I will make you into a nation greater than they. Just like Moses has always done throughout the first, the, the last four books of the Bible, Moses is interceding on behalf of his people, say, God, please don't do that. I understand, and you're not wrong, but just consider the, the outworkings of, of what, the, what these, these worldly people are going to think about the one true mighty God. And so God, in verse 31 through 33, he says, Your children, however, whom you said would become prey and plunder, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you... Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. That's a tough pill to swallow. That's hard. But even in his harshness, God saw fit to be kind enough to honor his promise to Abraham. So even though we might not like how we still get to, to point B, we can appreciate the fact that he's willing to bring us from point A to point B. So not only did God discipline us, he disciplined the Israelites not just because they repeatedly did wrong. It was that they did wrong and they were God's chosen people. If you grew up like me, one of the conversations that we had in our house is, what is your last name? Now, when we go to this store, or we go into this school, or we go into this office building, you better not embarrass who? They didn't care about us. They, they didn't want to be embarrassed. It wasn't, it wasn't about you doing something wrong. It was the fact that you were embarrassing them because you are their child. And so God is dealing with the Israelites, not because they're acting like the other people in the land. He's dealing with the Israelites because I chose you. And what you will not do is embarrass me in front of all these other people. So because you want to act a fool, I think I'm going to act a fool too. And guess what? I've been, I've been around a whole lot longer than y'all. I can do this a lot better and a lot longer than you can. So guess what? 40 years. For the 40 days you were in the land, you're going to spend 40 years outside of the land. Looking at the same rocks, looking at the same trees, looking at the same river. The whole time you're just watching people drop. Just drop. That's tough. You mean to tell me that God's going to keep me and let the people I love die? What do we do with that? I tell you what we do with that. We have to realize that God's punishment is severe, enough, is severe enough to break the will of his people, but not the spirit of his people. As parents, we have to be very careful with the way we discipline our children. Yes, we want them to act right, but if we go above and beyond, we can totally destroy the type of child we're supposed to have. 
So not only do we see that God has a personalization to his discipline and an inspiration to his discipline, but third and finally, we want to see the motivation for God's discipline. We see, firstly, that God wants to capture our obedience. In verse 2 of chapter 8, it says that he might humble you, testing you to know in your heart whether or not you would keep his commandments. The question he's asking, will you choose me even when you're not sure? Sometimes we just have to let our feelings catch up to what we know what we're supposed to do. In Matthew chapter 28, it says that the the disciples went to the appointed place to worship God, even though some doubted. And shortly thereafter, Jesus gave the Great Commission. So guess what that means? You got people who weren't really sure what was going on and they still got the blessing. Do you realize you don't have to feel like this is the right thing in order to do the right thing? You know that sometimes you're not going to feel like getting out of bed and going to work, but you know that that's the right thing to do. If I'm honest, sometimes I don't feel like being the most loving person to my wife. But it's the right thing to do. And there's sometimes I'm tired of being a parent. I mean, like, my tired is tired of being a parent to my children, but it's the right thing to do. And sometimes we have to operate in a way that that leads the way for our emotions to catch up with our obedience. So not only is he trying to capture capture our obedience, second, beloved, he's trying to capture our dependence. Verse three, it says he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers knew that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the Lord's mouth. Understand in, in, in the wilderness, God provided the food, but it wasn't food that they were able to store up. Each day, the Israelites were tasked with getting manna for the day. And guess what? They tried to get more. And so even on the Sabbath, God wanted them to honor the Sabbath. And he said, when it comes time for the Sabbath, the day before, get you two servings to hold you over. And guess what? They jacked that up too. They said, well, the food's been there for the last five days. Why would it not be there on the sixth day? And they showed up and there was no food. So there's, 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 there's this thing that, that God is trying to teach the Israelites. It's not just do what I say, but I want you to look to me to hold you over. I got enough grace. I got enough manna for you each day, which means I have enough grace for you each day. And you don't have to worry about holding on to that grace from yesterday because I got plenty left over for you tomorrow and I got some for the next day and if it's about resting I got a double portion for you to hold you over while you recover he says so once you choose me the question then becomes will you depend on me to take care of you I can't tell you how many times when me and my wife had the conversation on whether or not we were we were going to go down to a one income household and it was like hey Grace is 11 months old, and the boys are are brand new. 
there is no daycare in America that is not going to charge us a mortgage to watch these kids. Now, mind you, this was back in 2014. So I, I, I don't even know what it's like now, but what it, if, it's, if it was a mortgage back then, it's a down payment on a plot of land now. Whatever the case may be, we knew that something had to give. But how many know that God is faithful? There were so many times we were struggling, trying to figure out how we were going to pay rent. And the day we said we were going to go out and do something else, there was a check in the mail. It wasn't just, it wasn't just any old check. It was exactly what we needed every single time. Are you willing to depend on God for everything? For the food that we eat, the clothes that we buy, the music that we listen to, the people that we connect with, the places of employment that we're employed with. Third and finally, that God not only wants our obedience and our dependence. Last and finally, beloved, God wants our worship. I need you to think about this for a second. He says in verses four and five, he said, your clothes didn't wear out on you and your feet didn't swell for 40 years. Last year, I ran a marathon. I'm not bragging. Took me six and a half hours to complete it. And my feet looked like sweet potatoes at the end of it. That was I I wasn't even on my feet for a whole day. Can you imagine 40 years watching people drop? Boom, there goes granny. Boom, there goes uncle. Boom, there goes my big brother. And the whole time your clothes are still kept together. The whole time your shoes are still kept together. Like God is still good even when he's hurting us. And that's because God is the author of good, so everything that he does has to be good. So the question is, are we going to get on his page and see that even in his righteous, justified ruling to deal out his discipline, he's still good? And that's worthy of worship, amen? And so God, what what was interesting about the whole thing is that God did not budge on his holiness But he also fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm not sure if you know, that's the gospel right there. The fact is that God is holy and perfect, and he demands perfection. And the payment for sin is death. So what what does God do about that? He certainly didn't look to us. He looked to his son and said, I need you to go ahead and make that payment so I can have relationship with these people that I created to worship me. And Jesus submitted and he obeyed and he did what the father did. And God, the father sustained his son all the way to the cross. Just so the payment for our disobedience could be satisfied. As I close, I opened up talking about whoopings. I'm going to go ahead and close about whoopings. One of the other things that happens that happened in the Tyler household was my dad would sit me and my two brothers down at the beginning of the school year. And he said, 
All right. It's the start of the school year. You know the rules. If I have to come up to that school for any reason, it's curtains. Well, in the sixth grade, I found out that my dad wasn't lying. I was sitting in uh, Mr. Henderson's class, and we were having a ball of a time, and I see this six-foot-four man walk through the door, and all, look, I understand I don't have that much in my, my, my body, but all the melanin in my body was depleted. Just, I, I, it, it, I, I, I knew that like, you could not convince me. It was a wrap. So they, they had a conversation, and the whole time, that there was no fun being had. All the cool was out of my seat. I, I just, I didn't even want to make eye contact because I felt like that would incite a riot at the school because maybe if I don't look directly in his eyes, he'll at least let me wait till we get home before he embarrasses me because that was the promise, right? So after the conversation, he just looks at me. He says, I'll see you when you get home. Now, it's never happened to me before. Usually it's always on site with my father. But he said, I'll see you when you get home. So again, back up to the office, sitting there waiting, trying not to fall asleep because I'm stressed out. And usually when you're stressed out, what's the best thing to do in stress? Go to sleep. But you know you can't go to sleep when it's discipline time. When it's whooping time, you go to sleep. That's an extra whooping. The whooping will wake you up, and then you got to get a whooping for whatever you got in trouble with. So I'm sitting on the bed, sitting on the bed waiting, and he comes in. And again, I'm back with the judge, the jury, and the executioner. But we have this conversation about what was going on. And I was just like, Dad, I, this, this, this is boring. I just... I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And so from that point on, I really don't remember what happened. Now, history would suggest I know what happens, but I had a conversation with my father this weekend. And I asked him, I said, do you remember the sixth grade? He was like, I think I do. Was that the year that you got a D in social studies? Yeah, 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 that year. I said, what happened? He's like, we had a conversation, and I let you go. I was like, you let me go? He said, he said something that stuck, that stuck with me. He said, he said, I found out, when I found out why you weren't performing the way you were supposed to, he said, he came to an understanding that there was something deeper going on and that getting punished would have possibly made the situation worse. I find it now as a 39-year-old man that I can sit here and attest to say that the punishments are justified. Oftentimes, we might think it might be excessive, but they're necessary. And if our father, like it says in, in Deuteronomy 5, if our father is willing to discipline us, if our earthly father is willing to discipline us, how much more then? If our heavenly father wants to discipline us, because the issue that we need to realize is that if we don't get disciplined, how can he say that he loves us? And as a father now, I can honestly say that I understand what my parents meant by I'm doing this because I love you. 
The truth of the matter is God must discipline us if he says that he loves us. And dare I say that God will discipline us because he loves us. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you, Father God, for just loving us.